Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. I am so honored to have Dr. Ramani Dervasala with us today. She is a licensed clinical psychologist in a private practice in Santa Monica and Sherman Oaks, California, and a professor of psychology at California State University, Los Angeles, where she was named Outstanding Professor in 2012. She is the author of the Modern Relationship Survival Manual, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Surviving a Relationship with a Narcissist, as well as the author of numerous peer-reviewed journal articles, book chapters, and conference papers. The focus of Dr. Devasila's clinical, academic, and consultative work is the etiology and impact of high-conflict, entitled, antagonistic personality styles on human relationships, mental health, and societal expectations. On October 1st, her new book entitled, Don't You Know Who I Am? How to Stay Sane in the Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, and Incivility will be released. Dr. Devasala received her MA and PhD degrees in clinical psychology from UCLA. Her research on personality disorders and health has been funded by the National Institutes of Health, and she was the editor of the special issue of the journal Behavioral Medicine Addressing Personality and Health. Welcome, Dr. Devasala. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I found out about you from your, I would say, groundbreaking TEDx talk that I was so impressed with and so excited to have you on to talk about some of the things that you talked about during your talk. I'll have a link to this in the article that's associated with this podcast. So if you go to our website, btr.org, and find this podcast episode, you'll find all the links that we're talking about today. You talked about how a lot of people are labeling people as narcissistic when really it's just bad behavior. And at BTR, we're talking a lot about how sexual addiction is abusive to a spouse. So my first question for you is, while narcissistic behavior patterns seem to be a hallmark of sexual addiction, those who get into and maintain recovery tend to cease those behavior patterns, indicating lasting change is possible, at least for those who choose to do the hard work required to get into and maintain recovery from their addiction. And yet for some, no amount of recovery work seems to bring change on. Maybe they're not doing it right. I don't know. But short of investing years to wait and see, are there indicators that wives can look for to determine if their loved one with narcissistic behavior patterns is capable of change? You know, it's a great question because what it gets at is that when you have something like sex addiction tangled up with narcissism, just like if it's sex addiction, substance addiction, that's an entanglement of two patterns. Now, if you had someone, sex addict, for example, but not narcissistic, then those are the clients where, whether it's 12-step, trauma work, ongoing therapy, that's going to work well. They're going to commit to a program. They're going to commit to whatever they've promised to or promised to themselves in terms of their growth, in terms of distancing themselves from these patterns. When you have both patterns present, the sex addiction and the narcissism, you're not going to see as much change. You got to remember that the sex addiction pattern is very much focused on the other patterns, the, the lack of empathy, the entitlement. I have a right to do this. I have a right to five orgasms a day. I need validation. I need lots of people who tell me I'm sexy. And this sense, it's the spoiled child of it all. So I would then argue that the sex addict who also has significant comorbid symptoms of narcissistic personality, 
is not going to get much better. What you might be able to do is less time spent on pornography. They may be less likely to engage in another infidelity, especially if the stakes are high, for example, an expensive divorce, potential loss of custody of a child, a financial hit, shame in the eyes of their community. But when you have that narcissism, because that tends to be what's driving the compulsive sexual behavior and the compulsive need for validation, that's what's often going to be the reason treatment doesn't work. So I would view narcissism as the barrier to it working because there's very, very, very little evidence other than in the most rare of cases that narcissistic patterns are amenable to significant change in treatment. And please note the use of my word significant. What you might get is a partner who actually stops cheating or stops going to sex workers or stops going to massage parlors or stops watching porn, but they are still unempathic. They are still entitled. They are still rageful. So it's sort of like choose your poison. Some people might say, okay, the sex addiction part's gone, but this is still a really not nice person. That's where it starts to get complicated. Was that from Epstein, the quote, the five orgasms a day? Now that you're saying that, yeah, I guess I read something and he said, I'm a great guy. I'm a hardworking guy, king of the world. I have the right to five orgasms a day. I've heard that before. Exactly. Yeah. That entitlement to sex is interesting. So is there any way that a woman can sort of see if he has those narcissistic traits while he's using porn? Or does he need to stop using porn for a little while and then see if it's related to the porn? Or do you see what I mean? Like, how can you kind of separate that out? If you're going to try to determine whether somebody's narcissistic, then you're looking for things like, are they empathic? Are they entitled? Or are they not empathic? Are they unempathic? Are they entitled? Are they grandiose? Are they superficial? Are they arrogant? Are they prone to rage? Are they controlling? That's what you're looking for. So what they're looking for is, do they have the ability to empathize with me? Now, when women are looking for that, how can they separate grooming from actual real, true empathy? Because so many of these men, they seem like they're very empathic. They can say the right things and do the right things, but that's just part of the honeymoon cycle or the grooming cycle of the abuse cycle. So what would you say to women who are like, man, he really is empathic and kind and generous. Like my ex, for example, he did the dishes and he helped out with the kids and he was what I would say amazing person. And then he'd fly off the handle and rage and we'd go through the abuse cycle over and over again. What would you say to women who are like, well, there is this part of him that is so empathetic? We don't cut people into parts. It's holistic. What I'm about to say is going to sound incredibly cynical, and I apologize for it. But sadly, I do judge people on their abuses and not on their virtues. Because you've now shown me what's in your wheelhouse. And I have heard the saying, hurt people, hurt people, and all of that. And it is true. And it may very well be somebody has a story of trauma in their backstory. That doesn't qualify me or anyone else to be your punishing bag. So the first time somebody goes off into a rage, it's time to go. I mean, it's that simple. And yet it's that complicated. And so no, doing the dishes doesn't obviate going into a rage. The rage always will trump be more important than the emptying the dishwasher. We're 10 years from a robot emptying a dishwasher. So the other thing a lot of people confuse is generosity. They'll say, oh, but he took me to so many nice dinners and he bought me an airplane ticket and he took me on a vacation. Any fool can do that. Anyone who has enough money in a bank account, that's just pulling money. That's easy. 
It's the heavy lifting. It's how does this person cope under conditions of stress or frustration? Something at work doesn't go the way they want. You're running late someone. You take a trip with them and things aren't going right. How does this person handle themselves under those conditions? That kind of stuff shows up in the first four to six weeks of a relationship. And if you find yourself writing excuses for this person, be very careful because the excuses you're writing at four to six weeks are the excuses you'll be writing in 40 years. Mm-hmm. I love how you said a robot will be doing the dishes in 10 years. When things are really devolving in my relationship right before my ex's arrest, he said, I just want to connect with you. Or he was making excuses for some of his behavior. And I said, well, what do you do to connect with me? And he said, I mow the lawn. See, and I think that, again, there's all those books out there, the men from Mars and the women from Venus and the love languages and all that. I'm not a fan because what those books run the danger of doing is writing off as an excuse like, well, his love language is doing the lawn. I think doing the lawn is perfectly fine, but only if it's embedded in a larger framework of empathy, kindness, compassion, respect, mutuality, patience, serenity, and compromise. And you know what? I'll cut my own lawn if I can have all that other stuff. Yeah, totally. So talking about co-parenting, let's go that direction for a minute. When co-parenting with a narcissistic individual, what measures can a healthy parent take to reduce the risk of the behavior traits being passed on to the next generation? The one thing that's most important to note is that it takes one good, healthy parent to raise a good, healthy kid. We know that. And I think a lot of parents panic thinking, oh my goodness, I really chose a bad person here and I'm going to pay forever. But what it means is that good, healthy parent now has to do the work, not of two parents, but of three parents. Because you have to do the work of you being a good parent. And then you have to do the work of dodging the bullets of the bad stuff that the unskilled parent is doing and then step into their role. So that's like a third job here. And I tell people that the key is, is to stop waiting for justice, but they should be doing this. They're the other parent. It's not fair. No, it's not fair. And sadly, the only thing that many people can do is look in the mirror and say, I made a lousy choice, but this is not this child's fault. And so I've got to step up And I've got to do right and not get caught up in what's fair, what's not fair, but to really, really do the heavy lifting of parenting, which means teaching your child how to tolerate frustration and disappointment, teaching your child empathy, allowing your child's emotional vocabulary to develop and grow and never shame them or humiliate them for feeling anything, for engaging with them, being mindful with them. You have to be everything. You have to be the one at the soccer game. You have to be the one teaching them to wash the dishes and do their chores and compromise and play nice and all of that. You have to be super person if this is the case, if you're co-parenting with a narcissist. I have worked with many clients who had one deeply narcissistic parent and one very, very, very loving parent, and the loving parent saved them. The only downside to this is if a child grows up with a very narcissistic parent, even if they have that very loving parent, something I do often see in adulthood is that these people grow into rather anxious adults. They still live under the specter of I'm not good enough or what could I do to win them over or the tension or anxiety that a rageful parent brought into the home. Even if they had that loving parent, it may not translate into narcissism in that person that when they turn into adult, it may turn into anxiety. Mm, Interesting. I can't be super person, so that is a little bit discouraging, but I will try. <laughs> the more I think about that and I'm like, oh, I parallel parent so that I hold a no contact boundary. And that helps 
But I still find myself like I get exhausted. Being a super person is impossible. It is impossible. In some ways, it's also having like those standards of like being the good enough parent, but also never gaslight your own kids. And by that, I mean, you don't have to say, well, dad's your hero. And that's great. Like if dad humiliates, for example, that child showing an emotion, then you can say, sweetie, that wasn't okay. Emotions are wonderful, but some grownups don't always understand them. What's amazing about you as a little person is that you're actually brave enough to show your emotions. So you don't have to say, dad's a jerk who doesn't even have one emotional bone in his body and is a narcissist. You don't have to do that. What you can say is that what's amazing about you is you're able to do something and actually dad's not able to do that. And that's hard for him. Acknowledge it as a struggle as it is, but also that it's not okay to ever have their emotions shamed. Never let your kids say, oh, that's okay. Dad didn't mean that. Or that's just how dad is. Dad did mean it. That's why dad did it. That doesn't make it okay. You don't, again, it's that fine balancing act of not throwing dad under the bus because that's not good parenting, but also not signing off on it and saying, that's just how dad is. So you refer to charm, charisma, and confidence as the three C's of narcissism. Yet acknowledge not all who possess those are narcissistic. In the early stages of dating, before the traits which comprise the pillars of narcissism begin to reveal themselves, are there other clues to watch for which might indicate whether the three C's are red flags rather than positive traits? I actually talk about this in the new book, and I hint at this in Should I Stay or Should I Go? If you can find someone who's charming, charismatic, and confident, and also empathic, kind, reciprocal, serene and patient and all of those things, you just won the human being lottery is what you did. Because I think that somebody may be very charismatic because they're telling you a story about what they do for a living or about their life or something like that. You can get so caught up in that story that what we don't pay attention to is, are they listening to other people or are they merely holding court, acting as sort of like an entertainer rather than as a human being? The problem is we get so snowed. Everybody wants the fairy tale. I'm not a fan of fairy tales. And I think that in that quest, the larger than life people, we can get lost in them. It's almost as though you have to in your head saying, if I'm talking about myself, is this person listening? Sometimes charming people are actually really good at that. So you have to be careful. It's not just that they listen. Are they interested? Are they asking questions? Pay attention to how they talk about other people. Are they contemptuous? Are they belittling? People give you more clues than you think. You just have to be on. Now, not all of us want to be sort of a shrink the first time we meet someone at a cocktail party. And I get that. And it may very well be that the charming, charismatic, confident person is beguiling enough that you do go out on that first date or that second date. But notice what happens in those first few weeks, those love bomby weeks. Slowly but surely, you'll see their interest levels start to fade a little bit. You're going to see, again, real life happens. They might have to wait in line at a restaurant, or their order may not come out exactly the way they want it, or they may be barraging you with texts and you can't always answer. Watch how they answer when things aren't perfect. We so desperately want the charming, confident, and charismatic person to be the whole package that we try to ignore it when the other parts of the package don't show up. And so I think that if you can get those three things, 
with all of the other stuff, then it's fine. But those three things without the empathy and all the other good stuff, forget it. That's where you have to pay attention. And empathy is one of those things people should pretty much lead with. So if it starts to wane, if the people can't handle things like frustration and disappointment, those are the kinds of patterns that bring a relationship down. And another thing to pay attention to, no matter how charming or charismatic someone is, how sensitive are they? Hypersensitivity is one of those red flags that shows itself off early because people are trying to impress you when they first meet you, right? So if you say, oh gosh, you know, I never knew that school was that hard to get into. And they're like, what do you mean? That school is really hard to get into. That's a red flag that they're so hypersensitive. They're like, yeah, whatever. I had a great experience. And they can't be a bit easy breezy about it. That tension that when they feel that they're at all being slighted, that's a very big red flag. And a lot of people write that off to like anxiety when they first meet someone. Uh Uh-uh. That hypersensitivity is usually a sign of more problematic things lurking. That's interesting. When you said they're listening, but are they really listening? It reminded me of my ex when I would talk. I thought he was the best listener because I could just sit and talk and he would just sit there and listen what I thought. But looking back, I realized he was never really engaged. He was just there in body, but not actually engaged with his mind. So he wouldn't ask me follow-up questions or ask me how I felt about it. But I'm very, I would say, independently descriptive. So I would say, this is how I felt about it. You know, and I would just sort of say all the things I wanted to say without needing prompting. So I thought he was a good listener, but I know now that that was not good listening. He was probably daydreaming about bike parts or something. Yes. And also pay attention to how much they remember. I mean, well, ah, well, he has ADHD, so he doesn't remember stuff. I don't know. When you care enough about a person, you remember stuff. And if you do sort of feel like it's a soliloquy, and many times when we first meet someone, we're anxious. So some of us talk too much when we're anxious. So a narcissist might actually cut you a wide berth to keep talking and talking and talking and talking. We think that's good listening. Actually, good listening means that every so often they say, and how did that feel? And what happened next? That their punctuation into the conversation means that they're actually tracking what you're talking. Just really quickly on that same note, when I would interrupt my ex when he was talking, to track what he was saying. So you mean this or, oh, this is what happened. He would get angry with me for interrupting him. And I was like, wait, I'm practicing active listening skills. You know, this is what people do when they're listening to people. And he would get really mad and tell me that I needed to be completely quiet until he was done. Do you see that? Is that common? Yeah, that's a real problem too. I mean, again, there's a lot of places that could come from. It can come from arrogance. It can come from entitlement. It could come from family of origin issues, that that's how they did it in this family, that you kind of did your little speech and then sat down. Here's the thing. People say, well, if that's how they grew up, then I feel bad for them. I feel bad for them too. But if that doesn't work for you, this is how it's always going to be. You know, so it's like, I get that people feel bad for where people came from, and that's lovely and compassionate, but you're not going to change that. You can't unring the bell of their history. So yes, I think narcissists, like I said, they hold court. Everything's a soliloquy. You say this long speech, and then someone else says a long speech. It's parallel play. It's not the interactiveness of a relationship. And so that idea of stop interrupting me, if that happened early enough in a relationship, that's usually a red flag of a problem. Wish I would have known that before. That would have been helpful. But hopefully our listeners will think about that as they're interacting. 
Dr. Ramani and I will be continuing this interview next week. So please come back for the end of this interview. I'm so grateful for her for educating us more about narcissism and how it can affect us. If you are in a relationship with an active pornography user and you are seeing these types of abusive behaviors, I invite you to check out the Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group schedule. You can find it under Daily Support Group on our website. So go to btr.org, click on Services, and click on Daily Support Group. Check out the schedule to see if that will work for you. If this podcast is helpful to you, please make a recurring monthly donation. Your donations help me continue to take this message of peace, but also educating women about abuse throughout the world. To set up your recurring monthly donation, go to btr.org, scroll down to the bottom and click on make a donation. So thank you to those of you who support and make this podcast possible. Also, I want to thank all of you who have rated the podcast and written a review. I am so honored when I read those reviews and grateful that it's making a difference. If you are interested in coming on the podcast anonymously to share your story or your experience, please email me at anne, A-N-N-E, at btr.org. Our listeners love hearing other women's experiences. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Betrayal Trauma Recovery, Twitter at Betrayal Trauma, and Facebook. Our page is Betrayal Trauma Recovery. We also have a free Facebook forum that you can join if you go to our website and scroll to the bottom and put your email in our join our community section. That will give you instructions about how to join our free Facebook forum. So thank you for listening and thank you for being part of this community and thank you for sharing it with other women so that women all over the world can establish peace in their homes. And until next week, stay safe out there.